Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray. God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that our hearts and minds may be opened. Amen. The scripture for today comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 8 through 12. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now hear our Old Testament passage from the book of Isaiah, from the 55th chapter. Seek the Lord where he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord and to their God, and he will have mercy on them and he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is the word of the Lord. Today we continue our summer series on compassion journeying alongside Karen Armstrong's book, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life. The seventh step to compassion is this, how little we know. This may well be a controversial statement here in Ann Arbor (laughs) and to a newly ordained minister like myself. But for Armstrong, recognizing how little we know is so key to understanding one another understanding other perspectives, differences, something about our knowledge or our limits of our knowledge influences and affects our relationships with other people, she seems to be telling us. When I first think about the impact that knowledge has in our world, I think back to the the saying that knowledge is power. I'm sure it's got an old root somewhere, but I know it from the old schoolhouse rock cartoons. The opening theme was this, as your body grows bigger, your mind has to flower. 
it's great to learn because knowledge, knowledge is power. <laughs> knowledge is power. I think there's a lot of truth in this. It's not a coincidence that in so many different anti-poverty and anti-hunger efforts all around the world, education and knowledge bringing is such an important piece to these efforts. I gave a children's sermon last week outside where we, um, we read a book about Wangari Mathai, who was the Nobel Peace Prize winner from a small village in Kenya. Mathai worked really hard in school and received a scholarship to study in the United States. She learned about biology, and so upon returning to Kenya, she was able to bring her gifts as a biologist to confront the environmental crisis facing the people of Kenya. And she was also to, able to advocate for women in politics. Knowledge was a powerful thing for this woman, powerful for her and powerful for that whole country and indeed for the world. Knowledge can be a tremendous power for good. But knowledge can also be powerful even if it's not true. Knowledge can be powerful even if it's not good knowledge. I think of the church in the antebellum south using a knowledge about God in order to justify slavery. It was a type of knowing, a type of knowledge, and it certainly was powerful. But it wasn't true. It wasn't true knowledge. John Calvin, who was a lover of knowledge, wrote that there's only really one type of wisdom that humankind can actually grasp and that it's made of two different types of knowing, and you can't know one type without knowing the other. Knowledge of God on one hand, and knowledge of ourselves on the other. When I look to God, and I see God's own kindness, God's compassion, God's justice, I realize that I don't live up to those good virtues. And when I know about myself that I am sometimes judgmental, that I'm sometimes unkind, I'm directed to see God's kindness and God's way, and I can aspire to that way. These two types of knowledge go hand in hand. We grow in one by growing in the other. Calvin wants us to know that everything that we do is tainted, is always colored by our brokenness every little piece of knowledge that we have. That's what knowledge about ourselves and knowledge about God teaches us. In a world, in a word rather, we are to be humble. I think that's what Karen Armstrong is pointing us to today, humility. When we lose sight of how little we do know, and we do sometimes, when we lose sight of how little we know, we confuse knowledge of God with knowledge of ourselves. We risk confusing ourselves with God. In our reading from Isaiah this morning, the prophet is responding to one of these situations where the people have mistaken themselves for God. They are in exile in Babylon. And remember that exile in Babylon is one of the major crises that the people of Israel ever face. It flies in the face of who they know God to be and who they know themselves to be as God's people. God had chosen them to be 
delivered out of the land of Egypt and delivered into a promised land. God had given them good things like law. God had given them prophets to steer them in the right direction. God had even chosen to dwell among them in the temple. God told them, you will be my people and I'm going to be your God, says the Lord. It would have come as such a crushing blow to the people when the Babylonians swept through God's holy city, Jerusalem, and destroyed it, crushing God's house, capturing God's people and taking them out of the land of promise. What has happened to this covenant that God has made with them? Where is their God in all of this? I imagine the people singing the Psalms of Lament, as we do when we lament as well, crying up to God, why have you forsaken us? Why have you abandoned us in the midst of this despair? But after long enough time, despair and lament often turns into despondency. They grapple with one another. God hasn't held up with God's side of the deal, they say. God is weak is in comparison, maybe, to the gods of Babylon. And so they begin to think that the blame's all on God's side of the relationship. The blame can't be on our side. We haven't done anything wrong. This is where one commentator says that if you listen, you can almost hear Isaiah sigh at his people's reasoning. Isaiah knows what they're thinking. They think that they are the righteous and the just ones, and their God is the one who is broken and who is sinful. God is the one who's abandoned them, after all. That's how they've ended up in this terrible predicament of exile. Isaiah is the prophet. Isaiah is who God has called to steer them in the right direction. Isaiah, I think, has read Calvin. He goes on to say, See, the Lord's hand is not too short to save at all. It's not the Lord who has broken the covenant. Rather, it's your own iniquities that have made this barrier between you and God. You and your sins have hidden your face from God. And that's why God doesn't hear you. It's because your own face is turned away. In this relationship between God and God's people... Isaiah says that, no, the fault actually lies on the end of the Israelites. They're the ones that have turned away from their God. That's why they are in exile. God had never turned away from them. Isaiah insists that God's thoughts are not their thoughts. God's ways are not their ways. There's a great distance between God's righteousness and justice and God's love and the people's iniquity. There is a difference between knowledge of God and the knowledge we come to know of ourselves. And they've mixed the two up. But the good news that Isaiah delivers to his people, which we read today, is that they can still seek the Lord. That they can still call upon the name of the Lord and God will forgive them for their ways and show vast mercy, which God has never taken away from them. God will pardon and forgive them for turning away. 
It's right there. It's open to them. They can turn away, turn back to God right now. Karen Armstrong uses a phrase in her chapter for this week that struck me as helpful to understand others we don't agree with. And I think it's also helpful to understand the kind of compassion that we are called to use in order to address them. But I think it's also a helpful way of seeing God's compassion as God relates to us, all humans in the world. The phrase is simply this. We have to practice making room for one another. Making room for one another. In this relationship between the Israelites and God, God is on the right side of things. God is always on the right side of things. And yet God still makes room for the Israelites, still makes a place for them when they choose to come back. The Israelites have done wrong, but God has not turned away from them. There is still room for them in God. There's still room for us in God. I think this is how Armstrong's claim about how little we know connects to the practice of compassion. If God, who is just and righteous and loving, can make room for us humans, sinful as we are, if God can make room for we who are so different from God, then maybe we who are not perfect can make room for others who aren't perfect like us. Maybe we can make room for those who have different perspectives. And maybe we can come to hear, come to disagree in love, come to learn a new perspective, to gain a new understanding. One of the small joys that I've had the privilege of experiencing here has been teaching Presbyterian polity to new members and new officers. And a small joy indeed it has been. <laughs> but but in, all in all seriousness, one part of polity that I highlight each time I teach this, because it's a true gem of our tradition, is the notion that we are to hold one another in something called mutual forbearance. Mutual forbearance is one of the most beautiful words ever put together in our book of order. Mutual forbearance is to seek to trust that though we may disagree with one another, though we may have some different perspectives on something, that we can still make room for one another and to trust that our knowledge somehow that we hold together is stronger than any kind of knowledge that we hold by ourselves. This is a kind of compassion, making room for other people's viewpoints. It's a kind of compassion that requires deep humility that must be practiced by us. My friend Carla Pratt-Keys, who is a pastor in Virginia, made a powerful observation a couple weeks ago after the end of the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Carla was looking at some of the religious elements of the convention, and granted this year we found deep religious convictions in both conventions of the Democrats and the Republicans. 
In the Republican convention, she highlighted two different prayers, one at the beginning and one at the end of the Republican convention. Listen to how Carla describes them and notice how different they are. One prayer at this convention shows appropriate knowledge of self and of God, and the other one doesn't. The first prayer was by Pastor Mark Burns, who's from South Carolina. Carla made clear that as he began, as he prayed, Burns presumed to know God's political preference, (laughs) that he believed God was acting through one political party and indeed through one particular candidate within that party. Burns prayed that God would defeat human enemies, by which he meant the Democrats, Burns even prayed to keep us divided rather than unite us. That was one prayer at this convention. And yet the same convention, the Republican National Convention, ended with another prayer. This one by Reverend Stephen Bailey of Ohio, who spoke the last night. Carla writes that Bailey prayed that God would send God's Spirit to guide actions of the Republicans that night. Bailey acknowledged that God's ways are beyond any human ways of knowing, but that God's grace is available to us so that we can begin to know God. Bailey prayed that as Americans, that we all might be transformed, might be made better, might be made courageous, might be made even tireless in seeking more just nation for everyone whose lives are here in this place. Bailey prayed that we must soften our hearts to those who we call enemies and that we can't, when we can't find enough common ground to build a future together, and that's often the case, that what we need to do is seek forgiveness. We need to seek forgiveness in ourselves. Reverend Bailey's prayer at the Republican National Convention embodies Armstrong's principle of making room for the other within us and within our thinking. His prayer approaches God in humility, trusting that God will be the one who God will be and that God will guide us if we seek to follow. His prayer demonstrates compassion, mutual forbearance even, for those he disagrees with. It's hard to admit how, many, how little we actually do know in this world, in our relationships with one another, how little we know. In our relationship with God, how little we know about this world. But in seeking God, in seeking to know ourselves, that's what we can know, that, that God is in the process of restoring us and that we can be a part of this process. Should we make room for one another? That's what Armstrong is trying to say here. I think that's also what Isaiah is trying to say here. We ought to make room for the other because God has made so much room for us in God. I pray that for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Merciful God, send now in kindness your Holy Spirit to make our sharing in this bread and this cup a sharing in Christ's body and blood, and let that same Spirit rest on each of us, converting us from the patterns of this passing world until we conform to the shape of him whose food we now share. We pray it in the name of Jesus who gave us his own words to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. O God, you have called us and welcomed us and fed us at this table. What we know of your grace and love and what we do not know of your mystery and majesty, we pray for open eyes and hearts to experience as we leave this place. Through Christ our risen Lord, we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.